Have you got that Friday feeling? I do. And it's all because I'm joined this evening by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? Very well, Michael. That was a very kind introduction. Just wanted to, to, to let it be known how, how much my hours with you on a Friday evening cheer up and my week. They're a, a fabulous and to what's been quite a busy week this week, I have to say. Tonight, we're going to be talking about Elon Musk closing the deal um, on Twitter. Did he want to buy it in the first place? That's one of the controversies. Will he let Donald Trump back on it? What will it mean for the global public square, which is what he tends to call Twitter? A bunch of other stories, especially on Rishi Sunak, climate change, Julia Hartley Brewer on Question Time, and Rishi Sunak getting called out in a hospital by a patient. Elon Musk's dalliances with purchasing Twitter have been an on-again, off-again affair. The world's richest man first offered to buy the company in April after having built up shares in it earlier in the year. But by the summer, he had changed his mind. Musk claimed that was because Twitter had misled him about the number of fake accounts on the site. Most people, though, thought he'd just realized that the $44 billion he'd initially offered made the firm vastly overvalued. Following that change of heart, Twitter executives took Musk to court. They, of course, quite liked the idea of Musk overpaying them for their company. And now the deal has been closed. This Wednesday, Musk posted this video. So it's not a particularly subtle pun, but in case you're listening to the podcast, that was a tweet that said, entering Twitter, let that sink in. And Elon Musk is walking into Twitter HQ with a sink. Um, clearly, he's an intelligent man. That's how he managed to start a bunch of very successful companies. But the humor is somewhat crude. He tweeted this today. The bird is freed. Um, 278,000 retweets. And his Twitter profile now looks like this. His bio simply says, Chief Twit. Um, I kind of prefer that to the sink joke, I think. Since taking over, Musk hasn't wasted any time making big changes at the company. He has already reportedly fired Chief Executive Parag Agrawal, Chief Financial Officer Ned Segal, and Legal and Policy Executive Vijay Agad. Chairman Brett Taylor's LinkedIn profile suggests he is also no longer at the firm. So what does Musk intend to do with Twitter? Well, much of the focus up to now has been on content moderation and user bans. Musk has described himself as a free speech absolutist, and in March, he tweeted this. Given that Twitter serves as the de facto public town square, failing to adhere to free speech principles fundamentally undermines democracy. What should be done? Musk would go on to expand on his views about moderation at a TED talk in April. Well, I, I, I think we, we would want to err on this. If, if in doubt, uh, let, let, let the speech, let, let it exist. Uh, it would have, you know, if, if it's a, you know, uh, it, a gray area, I would say, let, let, the, let the tweet exist. Um, but obviously, you, you know, in, in a case where there's perhaps uh, a lot of controversy uh, that you would not want to necessarily promote that tweet, if, uh, you know. So the, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not saying this is, that I have all the answers here, um, but I, I, I do think that we want to be just very reluctant to delete things and, and have, um, just, just be very cautious with 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 perm permanent bans. Uh, you know, timeouts I think are better or, uh, than, than than sort of permanent bans. And um, uh, but just just in general, like I said, uh, how how it won't be perfect. But I think we want to to really uh, have 
like I said, the perception and reality that speech is as free as reasonably possible. And a good sign as to whether so there is free speech is, uh, is, is someone you don't like allowed to say something you don't like? And if that is the case, then we have free speech. And it's, it's damn annoying when someone you don't like says something you don't like. That is a sign of a healthy, functioning, uh, free speech situation. Yet moderation isn't the only issue that Musk has commented on. In the past, he has suggested it could become an app for everything, much like WeChat in China. And he had suggested the platform could consider dropping advertising as its funding model. That last aspiration didn't last long, though. He tweeted this yesterday. So the tweet accompanying the statement reads, Dear Twitter advertisers, and then the statement reads as such, I wanted to reach out personally to share my motivation in acquiring Twitter. There has been much speculation about why I bought Twitter and what I think about advertising. Most of it is wrong. The reason I acquired Twitter is because it is important to the future of civilization to have a common digital town square where a wide range of beliefs can be debated in a healthy manner without resorting to violence. There is currently great danger that social media will splinter into far right wing and far left wing echo chambers that generate more hate and divide our society. In the relentless pursuit of clicks, much of traditional media has fueled and catered to those polarized extremes, as they believe that is what brings in the money. But in doing so, the opportunity for dialogue is lost. That is why I bought Twitter. I didn't do it because it would be easy. I didn't do it to make more money. I did it to try help humanity, whom I love. And I do so with humility recognizing that failure in pursuing this goal, despite our best efforts, is a very real possibility. I love the combination of I did it to help humanity, and I do so with humility. There seems like some contradiction there, but there we go. Back to Musk's statement. That said, Twitter obviously cannot become a free-for-all hellscape where anything can be said with no consequences. In addition to adhering to the laws of the land, our platform must be warm and welcoming to all, where you can choose your desired experience according to your preferences, just as you can choose, for example, to see movies or play video games ranging from all ages to mature. I also very much believe that advertising, when done right, can delight, entertain, and inform you. It can show you a service or product or medical treatment that you never knew existed, but is right for you. And finally, for this to be true, it is essential to show Twitter users advertising that is relevant as possible to their needs. Low relevancy ads are spam, but highly relevant ads are actually content. Fundamentally, Twitter aspires to be the most respected advertising platform in the world that strengthens your brand and grows your enterprise. To everyone who has partnered with us, I thank you. Let us build something extraordinary together. Very notable, I think, that Elon Musk's you know, very, very high-profile takeover of Twitter, the first public statement we get, well, that's not just a sort of a few characters in a tweet, is to advertisers. Clearly, he, he sort of knows what his priorities are as soon as he gets in, into the building, or at least who he can't afford to lose. Aaron, your initial thoughts on Elon Musk buying Twitter. Well, actually, Michael, uh, a bit of uh, bit of boasting here. I was actually in the room when he was speaking at TED in Canada, and he said lots of things which I think have not really been discussed in, in subsequent sort of portrayals of him. He did say, for instance, that he would observe, or Twitter under his leadership would observe, the respective legal and regulatory frameworks of, of different countries and, and areas. You would not think that's the case, seeing certain politicians tweet today. He did say that he wasn't instinctively in favor of lifetime bans, but he thinks that actually, or he thought, maybe that's changed, that Twitter should be far more eager to just give temporary timeouts or delete certain tweets. I think those are good instincts. I think the instinct for lifetime bans is quite strange. And the idea of it all, you know, all or nothing. So you don't touch 
Trump's account until actually there was a sort of period of six weeks where actually that's it. He's banned forever. I think probably it is wiser and more intelligent to hold high, like high profile figures accountable before it gets that far, before things get that bad. Finally, also, I think, I think he's got a bit of a bargain. Now that sounds crazy, doesn't it? $44 billion. But bear in mind, Musk is worth $220 billion. I think after, after a billion dollars, it doesn't really matter anymore, does it? It's all about how much political power and status and legacy you can build. And I think for $44 billion, I think approximately 36 billion pounds, that changes every day these in recent months. Um, I think for $44 billion, he is getting a media company which is just head and shoulders above any rival. If you think of the sort of big media purchases and acquisitions in recent years, Nikkei bought the Financial Times Group for about a billion dollars, $1.5 billion in 2015. But look, in 2022, Michael, you know, a newspaper editorial saying, don't vote for this person, vote for that person is irrelevant. Nobody cares. Elon Musk and Twitter give a platform to, say, Donald Trump ahead of 2024. Well, that could be a game changer. So in terms of political power, in terms of being able to change the dial on the, on the American conversation, actually on the global conversation too, I think it's extraordinary value, actually. I think you can make or break nations owning this company right now. And for, for a small dent in his personal wealth, I think that's something that actually as a culture, as a society, we should all be talking about. If you think, for instance, Rupert Murdoch has toxified the public agora and our political cultures in the English-speaking world, in Australia, the US, UK, I would argue that this kind of trend, the world's richest man or one of the world's richest men, buying a social media platform is significantly worse. Let's come back to a bunch of those points in a moment. First of all, you've mentioned Trump. Um, so let's go into some more detail on that because lots of attention on what this will all mean has been um, and what it will mean for Donald Trump. The former president was banned from Twitter after the platform judged that his tweets had helped incite the Capitol riots. Musk had previously expressed opposition to that ban. And this is what he said when asked by the Financial Times this May if he would reinstate Trump's account. I do think that... Uh, uh, it was not correct to ban Donald Trump. I think that was, that was a mistake um, because it, uh, it alienated a large part of the country and did not ultimately result in Donald Trump not having a voice. He is now going to be on Truth Social, um, as will uh, a large part of the sort of the, the right in the, in the United States. Um, and so I think this could end up being frankly worse than having a sing, you know, single forum where everyone can debate. Um, so um, I, I guess the answer is that I, I, I would reverse the perma ban. I'll say I'm not, I don't own Twitter yet. So this is not like a thing that will definitely happen because what if I don't own Twitter? Um, but my opinion, and Jack Dorsey, I want to be clear, shares this opinion, uh, is that we should not have perma, perma bans. Um, now, now that doesn't mean that somebody gets to say whatever they want to say. If they say something that is um, illegal or um, otherwise, you know, uh, just you know, just destructive to the world, then then that there should be perhaps a timeout, uh, a temporary suspension, or, or that particular tweet uh, should be uh, uh, made invisible or or have very limited uh, traction. Um, but. 
I think promo bans just fundamentally undermine trust in Twitter as uh, a, a town square uh, where um, everyone can uh, voice their opinion. It was a fun, I, th I think it was a morally bad decision, to be clear, and, and foolish in the extreme. Even, even after he egged on the crowd who went to the U.S. Capitol, some of them carrying nooses, you still think it was a mistake to remove him? I think the, if, if there are tweets that are wrong, they should, and bad, those should be uh, uh, either deleted or made invisible. Um, and a suspension, uh, a temporary suspension is appropriate, um, but not a permanent ban. So if the deal completes, he might potentially come back on, but with the understanding that if he does something similar again, he'll be back in the simbin. Uh, he has publicly stated that he will not be coming back to Twitter um, and that he will only be on Truth Social. And this is the, the point that I'm trying to make, which is perhaps not getting across, is that, there, is that banning Trump from Twitter didn't end Trump's voice. It will amplify it among the right. And this is why it is morally wrong and flat out stupid. So he said that Donald Trump said he didn't want to come back to Twitter. He's only going to use Truth Social, that sort of right-wing free speech alternative to Twitter. Trump has, though, come out and, and spoken about this takeover. So he does still seem interested in, in Twitter. Uh, he said today, I am very happy that Twitter is now in sane hands and will no longer be run by radical left lunatics and maniacs that truly hate our country. Twitter must now work hard to rid itself of all the bots and fake accounts that have hurt it so badly. It will be much smaller, but better. It's a funny ending there. Is that is that a Leninist phrase, Aaron? Smaller but better, or is it just is that something that sort of I've I've just heard sort of far left people say in the past? You know, if definitely from like Trotskyists and like you know the Bolshevik tradition, like I think Lenin said it, something to that effect, right? And also, che, che Guevara said something, um, or maybe it was Fidel Castro actually. They said, you so know, you want, he, a, you, he, you want they, a tight cater, but that's very, very disciplined. Anyway, that was a little bit of a um, distraction. My apologies. Yeah. Um, let's get back to what Musk said about Donald Trump. What did you make of those comments he made? And how significant is this to Donald Trump if, if Elon Musk does let him back on? Well, I think it's massive. And actually, I think a lot of what Elon Musk said there towards the end is just not accurate. I think that M Trump being suspended, expelled, you know, unanimously across the major social media platforms. So, you know, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. I don't know if he's maybe he's back on Instagram. I have no idea. But there was there was. I think he. I think he's a fool of them. I mean, you tell me. I think he's definitely a fool of the meta companies. Are they on YouTube? I think they might still be on YouTube. But the sort of the scroll stuff. So yeah, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You know, he's not there, and I think that's had a massive impact actually on his broader cultural presence. So I, I don't buy this, and you know, I am one of those people, Michael, that says we should be circumspect about you know, cancelling people from, you know, the public conversation. But when you look at what it did to somebody like Marley Yiannopoulos, it did work. I don't, or Tommy Robinson, it did work, you know? So I don't, I don't buy that line of reasoning. I'm not saying in regards to a specific person, whether it was right or wrong. I think it was right with regards to Tommy Robinson, for instance, repeatedly breaking the law, uh, repeatedly uh, putting people's safety and, and, and health at risk. By lying, I, you know, I think it, it obviously does work. So I don't, I wouldn't agree with him there, but I do think actually he does have a point in regards to 
having Trump deleted from Facebook, Twitter, Instagram simultaneously was a, a, a clear moment to tens of millions of Americans saying, we can end people that you think reflect and represent your values and politics. And I think that's fundamentally not a good thing. I think having an aggrieved, vicious, increasingly fanatical minority of people in society is very unwelcome when it numbers tens of millions of people. So a little bit of you know complexity there. I don't think Trump should be you know, allowed back on all these platforms willy-nilly. But I do think, Michael, in retrospect, I said this at the time, it, it was a, a huge, historic, remarkable step to ban, I think at the time he was still a sitting president, Michael, you tell me. He was banned the day after the inauguration, so he would have he would have just left. He was, he was banned the day after Biden's inauguration because it was the Capitol riots. My was, apologies. Was to confirm Biden as president. Yeah, I thought it. I thought it was. Well, no, it was the no, sorry, it was two days before. It was between. It was between the confirmation and the yeah. inauguration. Probably, you're right. That's what I thought. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a small point, but to, to ban a sitting president of the United States, you know, quote unquote, the most powerful person in the world, I thought that was a real statement from the Silicon Valley companies. And realistically, of course, you might not like Trump. So in this instance, you say, good, I'm happy. Uh, but what if it was a socialist president? And he was enacting as unlikely as that is in our lifetimes. Plausible. It's theoretically possible. And he was enacting, you know, rules around closed shop trade unions, massively increased minimum wage, public provision of healthcare and education in the United States. And then Facebook and Twitter and Instagram said, no, thank you. We're not platforming you. So I do think as a rule, it's a very, very dangerous the very dangerous pitch for the left to be playing on and to be so certain of what one thinks. And I, I, I do agree that the idea of lifetime bans is inherently bad. And I think that Twitter handled the Trump situation very poorly in so much as months, years before it got that bad, they should have just, they should have just, you know, um, uh, I guess the word would be, you know, just nudged his behavior in certain directions through, yes, temporary suspensions, timeouts, deleted tweets. I think that's a more effective strategy. I mean, this is a this is a very different conversation about in regards to the broader one about multi billion uh, multi billionaires owning massive media companies, which of course is is entirely bad. I think it's important to insulate the conversation around who can and cannot be platformed and under what conditions from the question of ownership. Finally, you know, Musk, Michael, I said at the top of the show, worth two hundred twenty billion dollars, actually spending forty four billion dollars in this company really good value for somebody like him. What's he going to spend the money on, if not political power and status? And um, you have to understand how much money this guy makes. I remember talking to somebody in North America, and they went to Musk for money for their not-for-profit. And he loves their not-for-profit. He loves the cause behind it. And they sat down for half an hour, and I think they wanted something like $6 million from Musk. And he said, no. And they said, we've been sitting at this table and every hour this year, you've made $15 million, something like that. So literally every hour, this guy is alive at that point, obviously, because Tesla market capitalization was just through the roof, skyrocketing. He was earning insane amounts of money. He, he literally can't spend, nobody can spend that money quickly enough. And this is a broader trend. We see it with Bezos and with Musk, but you look at the the data with regards to the sort of the thousand wealthiest people in the United States, the thousand wealthiest people in the United Kingdom. And there is a runaway cohort of the ultra elite. And of course, as my interview with Gary Stevenson recently discussed, where does that money go? Well, on the one hand, it goes into assets. They get inflated. That makes the rest of us poorer. But for the ultra, ultra, ultra rich, 
it's going to increasingly go into, yes, media platforms like newspapers, but that was very much yesterday's news. Now it's about ownership of social networks. And again, Musk is hugely interested in the issue of AI. You know, he's played a prominent role in open AI. I think if you're thinking about developing AI applications over the next 5, 10, 15 years, access to Twitter with hundreds of millions, billions of people and their data is incredibly valuable for you as a business person. So the idea this is some unthinking, stupid, um, frivolous act on the part of Elon Musk, I think is uh, wishful thinking, if only. I think it's quite an astute deal for him, both in terms of the commercial side, but also the political patronage side too. We should move on quite quickly. I do just want to ask you one more question about Musk, though, Aaron, which I suppose is a bit more, in general, what do you think of the guy? And I don't mean this in terms of, do you think he's a nice guy? Is he likable? I think we probably both agree he's not particularly likable as a person. But I keep having debates in my life about whether or not he's genuinely innovative. Lots of people sort of seem to think he's just a fraud, just blagged his way to being the richest man in the world. I tend to more be on the position of, I mean, I don't think anyone should be able to amass that much wealth mainly because they will be able to buy with that amassed wealth political power. And I think that completely corrupts our political system. But he is he, he's an interesting billionaire in the sense that I do think he has revolutionized some interesting industries, space travel, electric cars. And I, I mean, I've got no idea what he's going to do to Twitter, but I wanted to know your sort of thoughts on that as, as Elon Musk, as a innovator, as a businessman, as an entrepreneur. Well, I think it's a good question. And I know there's some real mixed feelings about this. I mean, so for instance, the, the labor standards on the Tesla, you know, factory floor, not good. I'm not suggesting he's some, some, you know, socialist hero. He's an industrialist. I think that's a key difference between him and, you know, when we use the word entrepreneur, it often doesn't mean somebody who's acquainted necessarily with the industrial processes and the technologies they're working with. I'm not saying he's the lead developer. I'm not saying he's architecting the systems that are going to, you know, send people to Mars. And that's very much the image he likes to project. But he's certainly au fait with a lot of the conversations and a lot of possibilities and technologies that underpin his businesses. I think that's, I think that's inarguable. I, I don't also buy the idea that he's stupid. I just find this ridiculous. Or that, oh, he would never have made that much money if his family hadn't owned an emerald mine in South Africa. Well, lots of people start out with lots of money. Very few people end up being worth $220 billion. He's clearly excelled at isolating industrial innovations and, and, and commercial opportunities in a way that most people aren't. I agree with you. I think the problem is more the system. You know, I, I don't want to live in a system where somebody like him, as eccentric as him, I have no problem with eccentrics. I, I just don't think that we should have eccentrics worth more than the GDPs of small countries. I think that's probably a, an unwise way for humanity to proceed. If you want to just be a garden variety millionaire, you know, worth 30, 40 million dollars, you know, fine, you know, knock yourself out. Uh, but no, the, the runaway rich and, and the, the political implications of it are very, very dangerous. I quite like Mark Cuban, you know. Mark Cuban made five, six billion dollars. He bought a, a basketball team and and now he's basically kind of just unemployed. He just goes on TV, uh, does Shark Tank, he does podcast interviews, and he seems to enjoy life. I think that's that's probably a wise move. I, I'm always a bit circumspect of somebody who's made that much money, is still hustling and still hungry for more even when they're worth a quarter of a trillion dollars, which is more or less ballpark Elon Musk's worth now. Let's move on. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has said that he won't be attending the UN's COP27 climate change conference in Egypt. COP is, of course, a major annual event organised by the UN where world leaders meet to try and tackle the impending climate disaster. Speaking to Sky News, Sunak explained his decision. 
Well, look, I'm, I'm really proud, as everyone should be, about our record on tackling climate change, and particularly with regard to COP. I think everyone will remember that last year we hosted one of the most significant COPs in recent time. And that was important because that what we did there was set the targets and the roadmap for the world to follow if we're going to meet our climate ambitions. And I think actually everyone should also be really proud of how we're doing. We're one of the countries that has decarbonized the fastest. We now get over half our energy from zero carbon sources. We passed a landmark law to protect the environment. And under my government, we're going to continue to deliver on all of those things. Labour say it's a massive failure of leadership. No, it's, the leadership that we have shown on the climate is unmatched almost along the world. If you look at what we've done in this country, you know, we're an example for others to follow at the pace in which we've uh, reduced climate emissions, how we're going about protecting our environment. And those things are really important to me. It's important to me that as prime minister, we leave behind an environment that is better for our children and grandchildren. I'm very passionate about that. I'm very personally committed to it. And I just think at the moment, it's right that I'm also focusing on depressing domestic challenges we have with the economy. And I think that's what people watching would reasonably expect me to be doing as well. So Sunak's story, he's staying at home to prepare the autumn budget due on the 17th of November. He clearly hasn't heard of, of multitasking. Environment Secretary Therese Coffey appeared on the BBC, where she let slip what the government really thinks of COP. Do you understand how it looks with the Prime Minister not going? If he really felt that this was very important, not just for this country, but for the world to address, he would be there. He would show his face, wouldn't he? Well, so normally it's the case that these sorts of bigger uh, uh, political gatherings where you have the heads of state or, or the prime ministers uh, only happens every five years. Uh, we, we've been admirably led uh, in the presidency this year by uh, my friend Alok Sharma. Uh, and I think it's key that recognising this is following on from in, uh, what has been a big political moment last year, this being an implementation kind of COP. Uh, and it's uh, I'm not aware, for example, that, say, President Macron is going. Uh, but it's important that we, uh, of course, continue domestically and internationally. And that's what we're doing, including through my new department of DEFRA. In a later interview on LBC, Coffee described COP27 as, quote, just a gathering of people in Egypt. Um, we've also got a little fact for Therese, which is that French President Emmanuel Macron is um, attending. He's billed to be speaking at an event in the COP27 conference. And it's been reported that Joe Biden also plans to go to. He hasn't officially confirmed, but that's from sources close to him. It also gets worse because while you could argue economic chaos means Sunak will genuinely have a lot on his plate this November, that can't explain why the Tories have banned King Charles from going. Charles, who has expressed an interest in environmental issues for a long time now, was asked not to go to COP27 by Liz Truss. When asked about whether Sunak would overturn that ban, a Downing Street spokesperson said this. As is standard practice, government advice was sought and provided under a previous prime minister, and it was unanimously agreed that it would not be the right occasion for the king to visit in person. I'm not aware that advice has changed. With Charles and Sunak out, the three people who are set to be going to Egypt are Environment Secretary Therese Coffey, who you just saw, as well as President of COP26, Alok Sharma, and Climate Minister Graham Stewart. But in another dumbfounding move, when Sunak reshuffled his cabinet earlier this week, he demoted both Sharma and Stewart. Now, neither the COP president nor the Climate Minister remain as cabinet positions. And that means that the ministers most qualified to advise on avoiding climate catastrophe aren't even in the room. It's hardly what you'd expect from a prime minister who says he wants to take climate change seriously. And the snub by Sunak comes at a crucial time. His decision comes just a day 
after the United Nations found there is currently no credible pathway to 1.5 degrees in place. 1.5 degrees is, of course, the maximum increase UN scientists have said we can tolerate before risking catastrophic climate change. And the target is enshrined in 2015's Paris Agreement. As it stands, the UN suggests that current climate pledges with a 2030 deadline would still lead to a 2.5 degrees Celsius rise in global temperatures. That in turn would cause catastrophic weather around the world. Inga Anderson is the executive director of the UN Environment Programme. She said this. This report tells us in cold scientific terms what nature has been telling us all year through deadly floods, storms and raging fires. We have to stop filling our atmosphere with greenhouse gases and stop doing it fast. We had our chance to make incremental changes, but that time is over. Only a root and branch transformation of our economies and societies can save us from accelerating climate disaster. It's a tall and some would say impossible order to reform the global economy and almost halve greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, but we must try. Every fraction of a degree matters to vulnerable communities, to ecosystems and to every one of us. Aaron, what do you make of Sunak's snub to the climate conferences? Is it a big deal? There's a couple of ways of looking at this, Michael. So Tony Blair never went to COP. Gordon Brown just went once. David Cameron just went once. Boris Johnson just went once. So if you're on the right or a conservative, you could say, well, this is just hypocrisy from the left and from Labour. Again, they never went. Blair never went. That's true. On the other hand, clearly climate change has become a more salient political issue in recent years. There's a reason why Boris Johnson went. There's a reason, for instance, why uh, Gordon Brown went even in, in 2010 when, when Blair didn't. I think it's fair to say, 2009 rather, that it just became a more salient issue over time. I think that's inarguable. With regards to the specifics here, though, it makes absolutely no sense that Sunak isn't going. Because yes, the issue's become more salient. The global public's talking about it. It's shot up sort of policy areas that the, the electorate cares about. That wasn't the case in the 2000s when Blair didn't go. You know, you've got the sort of telegraph and the mail. That's what they'll say. That's what they'll trot out. Well, they never went. Why should Sunak? Well, it's a very different political context right now. And we're also getting far more dire warnings. But also there's the business case, which I don't quite understand, Michael. You know, decarbonization between now and 2060 for the global north and south is going to be worth hundreds of trillions of dollars. Hundreds of trillions of dollars. That might sound ridiculous. It's, you know, it's you know, larger than glo- I think global GDP is probably, God knows, north of 100 trillion dollars a year. But we're talking, of course, over here, you know, 38 years, 40 years. It's huge amounts of money. And, you know, Britain says that in terms of green finance, it wants to be a world leader. In terms of the technologies, it wants to be a world leader. Well, if you want to be a world leader in, in what's clearly going to be a very valuable area for profit, if that's what you want. I don't, I don't think markets and capitalism can address the climate crisis, but Rishi Sunak does. If you did believe that, why wouldn't you be at the most important show on earth when it comes to the climate crisis. We covered COP last year in Glasgow. It's not just, you know, it's not just policymakers and politicians and activists. There's business people there. There's lobbyists there. All the big brands are there in terms of hydrocarbon companies, car companies, and whatnot. Companies parading the technological solutions they think can address the crisis. There is absolutely no business slash commercial case for Rishi Sunak to not be there. None at all. In terms of the, you know, UK's kind of profile as a climate leader, trying to attract investment, for instance, in lithium-ion battery technology, uh, talking to major multinationals and getting them to set up shop here in the UK. There is no argument against that at all. So the only reason why he's not going, Michael, is because of internal political optics. They've knocked fracking on the head, which was smart. There was never a business case for it anyway. It wasn't going to happen. 
it wasn't going to reduce the price of hydrocarbons in this country. We've talked about repeatedly. Global energy prices, there's a there's a market, and that's what you produce the stuff for, to sell it on a global market of of gas or of 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 fuel or coal or whatever. Those are global prices. Just because you know, extracted from here in the UK doesn't mean we magically get it cheaper, if only. I mean, if it's publicly owned, yes, but that's not what the Tories are proposing. Surprise, surprise. So they knock fracking on the head. And I think just like I say, for pure internal political optics, he won't be going to COP, which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous from the point of view of what you're talking about with regards to the climate crisis. But even if you are a green capitalist like Mark Carney, you know, an evangelist for markets and capitalism, being able to solve this problem, I'm not. But if you are one of those, of course you'd want the prime minister there. Of course you'd want the king there. Makes no sense whatsoever. As is so often the case, the internal ruptures in the Conservative Party are more important than actually doing what's best for the country and doing what's best for the future of the country over the next 40, 50, 60 years. I think he also could have like done quite a smart sort of turn the political page thing, couldn't he? Sort of stood up, sort of make a self-deprecating joke. You know, I, I know you might all be aware things haven't been so easy in the United Kingdom now, but you're also aware that you know climate catastrophe will completely outweigh, completely dwarf any of the political and economic problems any one of us might have in our country at any one time. You know, he, he could have stood up there, looked like a leader and said, we as a country are going to be climate leaders, come invest here, et cetera, et cetera. Seems to have wasted that opportunity. Rishi Sunak, to be honest, to me, strikes me as someone who's never taken climate change very seriously. In his leadership campaign, he spoke about it in a very, you know, not a particularly articulate or well thought out way, opposed to onshore wind, the cheapest form of, I was going to say the cheapest form of renewable energy, but actually it's the cheapest form of all energy um, is onshore wind. If you're in this country, I'm presuming some countries it's, it's solar because it depends on your natural in, environment. But he was against that. People are giving him some kudos for keeping the ban on fracking. I think that probably has more to do with the Tory shires and sort of nimbyism there than it does to do with climate. Because if he really cared about climate, he would have banned fracking and legalized onshore wind production. He didn't do that. So I don't have much faith in the guy when it comes to climate change at all. And I also don't have much faith in Therese Coffey being put as, as environment secretary. I think on climate change is one thing where, well, until we get a Labour government, we might miss Boris Johnson. He took this much more seriously than either Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak, I think. Let's go on to our next story. Julia Hartley Brewer hosts a phone-in show on Rupert Murdoch-owned Talk TV. She seems to think that qualifies her to outright dismiss climate science, which is what she's done on this week's BBC Question Time. After Hartley Brewer defended the continued use of fossil fuels, this exchange took place. So, Julia, so when you've got the UN saying, as Armand is referring to, that there's no credible pathway now, it's a complete load of nonsense. That's not backed up by the latest IPCC. Well, listen, it is a nonsense. Maybe you know better than the UN. This is what the UN are saying, and that the current policies may lead to 2.8 degrees. It, it, it won't. These, are, these, those, those climate models have been, they have been exposed as complete nonsense again and again and again. They are the most extreme end of the scientific models complain, contained in those IPCC reports. What Fiona Bruce was referring to there was a recent UN report that concludes we will not be able to meet the goal of capping global temperature rises at 1.5 degrees Celsius. But according to renowned scientist Hartley Brewer, that's complete nonsense and not backed up by the most recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, report. Wrong. So in their report, the IPCC considers five scenarios that it uses to produce different climate change projections. The best case scenario involves a conversion to a global green economy. The worst case involves continuing to rely on fossil fuels and trusting new technology to mitigate its dangerous climate effects. 
So the latest report says this from the IPCC. Considering all five illustrative scenarios, there is at least a greater than 50% likelihood that global warming will reach or exceed 1.5 degrees in the near term, even for the very low greenhouse gas emissions scenario. So no matter what we do, no matter which scenario we end up in, it's more likely than not that we won't cap global temperature rises at 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2040, which is what the IPCC means by the near term. Julia Hartley Brewer clearly had not read this. She is completely contradicting what it says in the report. And it gets worse, this is back in the, in the report again, because we're currently living in a scenario that's much closer to the worst case scenario and nowhere near the best one, the best one being low emissions. Let's see what else Julia had to say, this time about climate change protesters. They want to stop other people living names? good lives. Yeah. If you want to have checking them out individually, if you want Julia. to have, if you want to have um, limits on people's ability to access fuel, you want to make it more expensive to get a plane abroad, to use a to use a car, to heat your home. You are going to be harming poorer people, and you're going to be harming poorer people in the developing world. In my view, these people are not just. Well, I think they're ta- they're tantruming toddlers who've clearly never been told no by their parents. I think it's time we told them no. I think they are deeply, deeply immoral in what they're doing. So Julia's argument here is that it would be better for poorer people if activists didn't succeed in limiting fossil fuel emissions. Wrong. Among many conclusions about how climate change disproportionately affects poorer people, the IPCC was highly confident that increasing weather and climate extreme events have exposed millions of people to acute food insecurity and reduced water security, with the largest impacts observed in many locations and or communities in Africa, Asia, Central and South America, small islands and the Arctic. Jointly, sudden losses of food production and access to food compounded by decreased diet diversity have increased malnutrition in many communities, especially for indigenous peoples, small-scale food producers and low-income households with children, elderly people and pregnant women particularly impacted. So clearly, the idea that action against climate change would be contrary to the interests of the world to poorer people is nonsense, which is why, you know, going to these conferences, you often have those smaller, poorer nations who are saying, let's be really, really strict. And the people blocking that action tend to be rich oil-producing nations such as Australia, Canada, and, and the Gulf states. Now, let's go on to another exchange between Hartley Brewer and fellow panelist Armando Iannucci. It's the developing world that's saying this has got to stop. It's the developing world that's saying we're on fire. They're really not. The world is not on fire and the world is not going to die and we're not going to die. This is catastrophizing stuff that is not actually in the scientific sections of the, the, the IPCC reports. It's not. Wrong, wrong and wrong. Again, among other terrifying predictions in their report, the IPCC was highly confident of this. Climate change and related extreme events will significantly increase ill health and premature deaths from the near to long term. Globally, population exposure to heat waves will continue to increase with additional warming, with strong geographical differences in heat-related mortality without additional adaptation. Climate-sensitive food-borne, water-borne and vector-borne disease risks are projected to increase under all levels of warming without additional adaptation. Yet despite being completely wrong in every single one of her climate change denying assertions, it didn't stop Hartley Brewer from responding to an audience member in this pretty shocking way. Um, I think it's a bit ridiculous to say that like climate change is just is not as bad as it is because did we not all experience this summer where we got 40 degree heat? Like that's 
unheard of. And also the floods that have been happening in Pakistan, like 30 million people displaced. Like 30 years ago as well. Yeah, climate refugees is like, that's going to, that's in our future. It's really immediate. And I think this summer should have shown everybody that we thought maybe it's going to be in a few, maybe in a few 30 years time, 2050. But it's happening right now. And I think we really need to take action. It's called weather. Yes, Julie, it is called weather. That's not the issue. The issue is that it's getting worse. Now, this BBC graph shows the 10 hottest days since records began. Seven of them have occurred since the year 2000. They're not evenly distributed across the decades, I can tell you. But it's not just temperatures that are changing. The rate of catastrophic flooding is increasing too. This graph of data from a global insurance provider shows natural disasters between 1980 and 2019. The orange area at the bottom represents floods, landslides and avalanches, all disasters involving water. They've gone up more than tenfold since 1980. Aaron, what do you make of the way sort of science gets discussed on a panel like like, like Question Time? Yeah, I think it's deeply inappropriate. I think in in journalism, you've got a, a, a difference here between news and comment. And of course, yes, you're right. When it comes to comments, someone like Julie Hartley Brewer can voice her opinion on something. But the way she is turning to alleged scientific facts, that is a factual claim which is not true, it's not accurate. And so that I think that errs from being a comment, an opinion, to something which is actually factually incorrect and it misinforms people rather than informs them. Really key detail here, Michael. Julia Hartley Brewer was on BBC Question Time, of course, this week. She was on, I think, about six months ago as well. So she's a regular guest on BBC Question Time. Would you like to know the last time a representative of the Green Party of England and Wales was on BBC Question Time, Michael? It was, it was last November. So you've got a political party with an MP. They win in council by-elections. In Dulwich, where that, the event was, the Green Party came second. But they don't matter. They, you know, they also come second when it comes to the BBC in terms of what voices they want to prioritise to Julia Hartley Brewer. So I think really, Michael, the blame here, yes, of course, she has to take a lot of blame, but her brand is to be provocative, to be this comedy bad guy. That's her brand. And I think actually the blame here is with the BBC, because when it comes to something like the climate change debate, I don't think you should allow somebody whose literal media brand persona is to be a comedy bad guy. It shouldn't be the case that they're allowed to outline absolute trash and claim it's there in in the IPCC report or it's, you know, it's a scientific data. Uh, It's called weather. Well, okay, Julia, why don't you go to the surface of Venus? It's 475 degrees C. You would instantly burn to a crisp. That's also just weather. What's your point? You know, the Ice Age was just weather, you know, where it would be impossible to undertake large urban settlements or farming across much of Europe. That was just weather. I mean, does that mean it doesn't matter? We'll just freeze to death now. It's just weather. Utterly moronic. Utterly, utterly moronic. It's on the BBC, Michael, because people like that exist. And look, she's allowed to have her views. But the way that she's repeatedly platformed on issues like this by an allegedly public service broadcaster, while you've got a political party, the Green Party, which has so much more traction within society, participates in democratic elections. They've got people in council elections, by-elections, pretty well last year, being voted for and sometimes winning in places across the country. Okay, it's not the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, but it's a national political party. In Scotland, they're in government. Irrelevant. Sorry. Let's have this opinionated person who who does radio shows for Rupert Murdoch instead. 
it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for the BBC. It's embarrassing for the country. I've just come back from Spain. I did an event with El País this week. And you had people from politics, civil servants, journalists. You had a guy from Santander Bank, Telefonica, Airbus. The whole conversation was about climate crisis, about automation, about the challenges of the 21st century. And I come back, and this is like I say, including people like Santander, Michael. It's a big European bank, and they're talking about green investments. That's not my politics, right? But when it comes to the climate crisis, they're immeasurably more serious about this than somebody like Julie Hartley Brewer, or seemingly the BBC producer who commissions her and says, why don't you come on to you know, shoot your mouth about crap you haven't the first idea about? So I go from that environment, Michael, where actually there's a serious informed debate around the climate crisis, industrial policy, addressing these problems, at least trying to address these problems. We might not agree on the solutions, but we agree on the problems, so let's try and address them and sort them out. And I go from that and I actually touched down back in London again uh, yesterday and Julia Hartley Brewer's on uh, BBC Question Time that night. That is everything wrong with this country. And often here on Navarra Media, we're on the left. We criticize people maybe on the center left or the center right or even the right. And yes, it's true. Many of those people are wrong about many things. But I think fundamentally, the issue in this country is about the media and media ownership. That is the fundamental issue. And actually, many people, I'm sure, on the center or the center right would have very different politics and very different views, particularly on the climate crisis, if it wasn't for people like Mr. Rupert Murdoch and his various factotums and water carriers and bag carriers like Julia Hartley Brewer. Ridiculous. I don't know why the BBC insists on doing it. Why? Her, the IEA, the Taxpayers Alliance, they're embarrassing themselves and they should be ashamed. We've got another question time story. This one, well, it's not a positive story, but it's a positive intervention. According to the Office for National Statistics, 2.3 million people are currently suffering from self-reported long COVID. It's a big story that doesn't get much attention, partly because those suffering from it don't enjoy much of a platform in mainstream news. Well, this week on Question Time, one woman tried to change that. As someone who has been left disabled by long COVID, I was completely fit and healthy before, and now I'm my life as I knew it is unrecognisable. I'm not getting appointments, I'm not getting the help. My GP actually says long COVID clinics are a myth. What we need is multidisciplinary places where you can go, where you can get help. It's just not happening. So what how, is, how's it affecting you? I mean, at my worst, I I mean, as you saw, I came in in a wheelchair. I'm I'm pushing myself to do what I can, but it it affects, it's a blood disease that stops the oxygen getting around your body, which affects any or all of your organs. Mm. The press keeps saying it's a respiratory disease. In older people, it tends to be more often respiratory, but in younger people, it tends more often to be heart or other stuff. Mm. So you're seeing increased numbers of heart attacks, things like that. And it is so urgent. People are being left with no help. When you're you're alone, you don't have a carer, you don't have the help that you need, you are just stuck in bed. You're not able to do the things that you do. I'm actually a founding member of a charity called Long COVID Support. We've been desperately trying to do what we can to help and support people where we can, reading all the peer research papers that are out there, trying to learn, trying to share that information. But, the but where, is the, is where is the support, support from the experts? Right, you're not you know, Because that's research. not, we're the ill people. You know, we and we're doing our own, you know, we're being the most resilient you can be. And, and so I have met the most resilient people I've met in my life through this. But we need help. And the, 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 the constant underfunding of the NHS across the board is disgusting. People are dying. People are killing themselves because they don't want to live a disabled life. And that's another issue. The, 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 the fact that disabled people are looked less than you know we're hardworking. we want to work we want to do we want to get on with our lives i didn't choose to suddenly stop 
It's such a powerful intervention. I mean, long COVID, when we cover stories on long COVID, it's some of the, the most feedback we get because there are so many people who are suffering from this at the moment. And, and it's worth saying, you know, long COVID can take many different forms. So for some people, it's, and this is why the 2.3 million figure is sort of hard to interpret because long COVID for some people means, you know, they're a bit more tired than they used to be, you know, which is, you know, frustrating, but it's not necessarily life-changing. For other people, it means their legs stop working. This woman was going to question time in a wheelchair completely transforms their life and gives them essentially a disability. So very different forms of long COVID that people can have. But yeah, as I say, whenever we cover this on this story, you get so many people getting in touch saying, you know, thank you for covering it because it's completely ignored because people have this sort of double misfortune. Is that a way of putting it or double oppression, which is one, they have these physical difficulties brought on by, by COVID, by long COVID. Two, they're not getting the treatment they need because it's vastly underfunded. And three, they're basically ignored partly because it's a bit awkward, it's a bit uncomfortable. We're going back to life as, as usual, or we don't really want to be reminded about COVID because we moved on from the pandemic. Maybe you're imagining it, which I, I mean, I think that is the, the response from sort of many in, in, in the media. I mean, in a way, I think it's helpful if we move away from this sort of, because of long COVID, we have to have zero COVID. And actually, you know, let's try and minimize transmission of COVID. But also the main thing is we are going to be living with it for a very long time. So let's really, really invest in care. So when people are unfortunate enough to get long COVID, there is wraparound support for them. No one's saying, oh, are you sure you've got, what is long COVID? I heard it's made up. Oh, get on some waiting list. And then you're going to have to wait weeks and weeks and weeks to see a doctor who doesn't actually know what to do, right? If we are going to live with this for the long term, which is what the government is telling us, living with COVID, then we need to support people for the long term. We need to support them really, really, really well. Because Living with COVID, that's what we're told we're doing, means most of us can get on with our lives as usual. One of the downsides of that, one of the downsides of not having a system like they have in China, where you have sort of periodic lockdowns and you have no COVID, one of the downsides of that is some people are unlucky enough to get long COVID. So if, if this is going to be the social contract that we have, when people get long COVID, we, we damn well better look after them. And that's not what we're doing at the moment. What we're doing at the moment is saying, oh, a bit awkward, isn't it, that you now find yourself with a disability? We don't really want to think about that. We don't really want to do anything about that. Also, by the way, we've underfunded the NHS for 12 years. So even if you were to, to turn up at A&E, we're probably not going to do very much. You'll have to wait 12 hours. It's not good. And I'm so glad that incredibly articulate, brave woman spoke there. She's actually tweeted since. She's called Helen Oakley. So look her up. I followed her yesterday. She seems like a very um, intelligent person. Um, I wanted to talk about some more news on this point um, because recent figures bear out that lady's point about the difficulty of getting medical care. The Guardian this week reported this. More than 60,000 people in England had a first assessment for post-COVID syndrome in an NHS specialist service between July 2021 and August 2022. But the latest estimates released by the Office for National Statistics show that about 277,000 long COVID sufferers in England report that disease has limited their day-to-day -day activities a lot. These are the people that experts would expect to be referred for an assessment. However, the numbers who have been seen so far are far lower. So Dr. Helen Salisbury, a GP and columnist for the British Medical Journal, said, quote, a fraction of the people who have got this problem are actually being seen within the existing services. So yeah, absolutely. Solidarity with anyone suffering with long COVID. And absolutely, we should be plowing money into support for people with long COVID and any other kind of chronic disease which have been systematically ignored for too long in this country. Let's go straight to our next and final story. To end his first week as Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak has visited Croydon University Hospital and taken TV cameras with him. One patient used the opportunity to tell Rishi some hard truths. 
and, and, and they've looked after you really nicely. Yeah, they always do. Yeah. It's a pity you don't pay them all. Well, we are trying. We are no, trying. No, you're not trying. You need to try harder. Right, I will take that away. Yeah. No, you're, they are a very nice team there, aren't they? They are, but it's yeah. important because they do very hard. They do do very good work, yeah. That patient challenged Sunak on nurses' pay. On the same day, a new report proved her point. The consultancy London Economics found that senior nurses now get paid 20% less than they did in 2010. The median wage for all nurses is 6% lower than it was when the Tories entered power. So this graph here shows how wages for nurses have changed since 2010 by year. So nurses are the red line. You can see by 2018, their pay had fallen by a whopping 10%. It has since recovered slightly, but it is still way below the 2010 figure. The blue line on this graph shows how this compares to private sector pay over the period. As you can see, the median pay for all professions in the private sector has fallen, but only by 3%, which goes a long way to explaining why many nurses have quit their jobs to work in better paid sectors. So you want to know why we have a crisis in the NHS? That graph will, will basically show you. You pay people terrible wages, you cut their pay. Obviously, it's appalling that pay has fallen in all different sectors, but if it's fallen less in other sectors, then people are going to leave nursing and work elsewhere because this is a very, very high-stress job, often a thankless task, and you're not getting paid enough to do it. Nurses, along with other NHS staff, have also been offered another real terms pay cut next year. In England and Wales, staff have been given an average of 4.75% more, with a bit extra for the lowest paid. The RPI measure of inflation currently stands at 12 So that means that's a real terms pay cut and quite a big one, actually, after a 6% cut over a decade more if you are a senior nurse. Um, NHS staff are currently being balloted to go on strike. Aaron, your comments on this story. I mean, often NHS crisis is talked about in quite abstract terms. Oh, there's it's such a complex system. There's inefficiencies here. There's savings that can be made there. We need to bring in new IT systems, et cetera, et cetera. Is the big story over the past 12 years that the reason we have an NHS crisis is because we don't pay doctors and nurses enough and so they left the profession? I think that's absolutely spot on, Michael. And I actually think it's that. And there's also the fact that there's too much outsourcing and there's too much disconnection. So for instance, you have appointment processes for GPs in a certain area, you know, being outsourced to a certain company. I don't really see the value in it. And actually it's making the NHS a more dysfunctional organization, not a better one. So uh, yeah, I think you have to start with that. Look, healthcare and just care generally, social care, are incredibly labor-intensive. You know, it's not like automotive manufacturing. It's not like farming, right? Um, or let's f- f- food production is a better word for it. It is incredibly um, labor-intensive, and it's going to remain labor-intensive. We can talk about AI and automation until the cows come home, but these will be very labor-intensive industries for a very long time. So the idea that oh, we can just change it with technology or with some new app or with, you know, yes, of course, a liquid biopsy where you can detect early stage cancer more cheaply, more efficiently than ever before. Fantastic. Should be a game changer in healthcare services. Fundamentally, most of the costs in that industry, more so in, in elderly care, but across healthcare, most of the costs are going into your workforce. It's a hugely, hugely labor intensive industry. So you're absolutely right, Michael. If you care about the outcomes, you need to have the best people paid what they're worth. And like you say, keeping people there is, is hugely important. If you have children or you want children, you know, the profession of a pediatric nurse, hugely, hugely important. Yeah, we've got right wing newspapers in this country talking about the, the birth rates falling. Why are people having children? And they want people who study to be pediatric nurses to be on less than somebody uh, stacking shelves at little. 
by the way, I think they should both be on more money and they're both socially necessary jobs. Food logistics is hugely important. But my God, Michael, we're paying people who study to raise healthy children. We're paying them next to nothing. It's, it's unbelievable. And so I think I look at that, how much is paid to a, you know, like I said, a pediatric nurse, good example. And then people say, oh, the country's not working. Well, yeah, because you have people like, you know, the chief execs at Royal Mail or the bloody, the half dozen um, private rail operators in this country or the water companies. My God, Michael, as a CEO of one of the water companies in this country, in the last two years, she took nine million pounds home. And then you've got nurses who can barely make ends meet and can't feed themselves at the end of the month. That is not an exaggeration. There's a social justice argument there. But like you say, equally importantly, I think, is if you want a functioning NHS, you need to start paying these people properly because they're not going to join the industry. What are the incentives when they're paid so badly? And they're not going to stay there once they are there if actually they're seeing their friends and their family and their former co-workers going elsewhere, like I say, into retail or supermarkets and, and making more money. It's absurd. It can't continue. I think for me, that is... One of those stories, when you see, you know, the pay that nurses are on this country, for instance, it's one of those stories you think, wow, we really are screwed. We really are screwed. We are not preparing for the future. The 2020s are going to be an incredibly difficult decade for a bunch of reasons, right? Energy security, rising inequality, geopolitics, climate change. And our political elite are asleep at the wheel. It's extraordinary. How the hell do you think you can run a national health service and not pay people basic money is jaw-dropping for me. Where I, I sort of think about Rishi Sunak and all this, if he has a brain as somebody seeking re-election, he will have to do something about NHS pay. He will have to. Jury's still out, of course. And it's worth saying, I mean, the same argument or a similar argument could be made basically for any public service. We've had public sector pay freezes or the like ever since 2010. I mean, not, not completely frozen, but I think in nearly every section of the public sector, wages are down since they were in 2010. I know in education, that's certainly the case. And so what do you have? You've got people who, well, people who are ambitious, they want to get further in their career, get paid well, they move out of the industry. Well, just anyone, you know, if you, you've got people say, well, I've got kids, so I can't afford to be a nurse. What kind of society says you can't have kids and be a nurse because you don't get paid enough to be a nurse? It's completely, completely bonkers. The terrible way to organize a society. It's no wonder that our public services are collapsing. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Michael, my pleasure, as always. And like you said at the start of the show, I love our Friday get-togethers. It's a little bit different to the weekday shows, and that's just how I like it. We get to be more uh, exploratory, lots of different um, topics going on. Thank you for watching. We'll be back on Monday at 7pm. Have a great weekend. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.